This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley Coming up on today's episode of the podcast. Uh, no PMQs this week because the MPs are all on recess. So instead we're going to bring you Dish United Kingdom. Actually we do every Wednesday on the radio show at 11 o'clock. Uh, Dish United Kingdom is political news from the four corners of the UK. A particular focus today on immigration because ministers from Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have written to the Westminster government saying that immigration rules are too restrictive and its uh, firms are struggling to fill vacancies. Uh, Anyway, that's coming up in a moment. We'll also do the fun story at the end and update our league table of how different parts of the UK do as part of the competition to find out which part of the UK is the most fun. Uh, That's coming up in just a moment. First, though, it's our columnist panel and a special pairing today. Uh, No Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton. So instead, we've got from The Times and The Spectator, James Forsyth, and from The Sunday Times, Rosman Irwin. Uh, now, though, it's that time of the morning. We always speak to two of our favourite columnists. And because it's half term and we've been on the road and all that, we've got all the people in all the wrong orders this week. Uh, so uh, today, uh, normally from Friday, joining us today, uh, Times columnist, uh, political editor of The Spectator, James Forsyth is here. Hi, James. Morning, Matt. And joining us as well from the Sunday Times, we've got Rosamund Irwin. Hi, Rosamund. Good morning. Nice to have you uh, both uh, with us. Right, let's talk, first of all, about... Inflation. Inflation is one of those things when times are good and it's just keeping steady. It's just a thing that wonks worry about. And suddenly it's it's just at a 30 year high. It's at five and a half percent. And that's even before things like the energy price cap going up uh, hits. James, how serious is this as a political issue for the government? This is the stuff. This is real life stuff. This is money in your pocket. And crucially, what, if anything, can they do about it? Yeah, inflation is one of the things that makes politics scratches. You know, Margaret Thatcher always used to say that, you know, governments could survive high levels of unemployment, but not high levels of inflation, because inflation uh, hits everybody. I mean, it basically means that people's uh, wages uh, aren't keeping up with inflation. We know that from the statistics. And so people get a bit worse off every month. Um, I think the challenge for the government is that most of this stuff is out of their control. You know, they can't uh, affect the international price of gas, which is one of the things that is driving energy prices higher. Um, I think we're also seeing all the consequences of essentially turning the world economy off again, off because of COVID and then turning it back on again. Uh, and then you've also got, you know, 
food prices rising. Uh, again, there's not that much the government can do about that. And I think one of the problems with the government is that COVID has created a kind of expectation that the government can step in and, and, and solve problems when it when it can't necessarily. Afford. You know, the government spent uh, announced the other day nine billion more than nine billion pounds to try and deal with energy prices uh and i was very struck that um the 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 initial kind of snap headline was you know uh government will only deal with half of the rising costs for people and you know that that's the problem for government they're spending nine billion pounds and people's reaction isn't like oh that goes some way it's like no no we've still got a problem and they think this is why where things are going to get so scratchy and so difficult for the government it's a good point that James is making, isn't it? The, 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 um, in the past, the, the you know traditional conservative response would be, well, we'd have to let the market take it. You know, this is what happens. I mean, we need to let it play out. But what we've seen over the past two years is so interventionist, so, you know, uh, if in doubt, Rishi Sunak calls a press conference and gets his checkbook out. And so there's an expectation, at least, that the government will do something, even though in this particular situation, there's not very much they can do. Yeah, absolutely. But of course, the people who are supposed to be responsible for inflation are the Bank of England. That is their sort of primary mandate. And instead, we had Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, essentially saying, don't ask for a pay rise to the nation's workers as they're increasingly stretched. I because if we ask for a pay rise, that pushes up um, other prices. Um, so the idea that, that pay restraint and bargaining is the solution that the Bank of England is offering us is a bit troubling too, when people are obviously incredibly squeezed. Um, but yes, absolutely, it is difficult to know what the government can do. I mean, they can sort of tinker, can't they? They, they can do things with taxation, clearly. Um, there are options here. You know, there's been a lot of talk about what they can do around rising pr gas prices in particular. But ultimately, lots of these pressures are, uh, you know, are global issues. And, and look, many people would argue Brexit is playing a, a, a part here because particularly around things like food prices, not so relevant on, on some other issues, but on food prices, some of those costs are partly going up because we've made it rather more difficult uh, in terms of transporting goods uh, to, into the UK. So that's also an issue that's probably been under talked about here. And of course, was widely predicted from 2016 onwards, including in the government's own forecasting. Um, I was looking back over Operation Yellowhammer. And of course, one of the things there that would have been no deal would have been uh, that, that we'd have food shortages. And instead, uh, rather predictably, it is also putting an inflationary pressure under prices, um, the deal that we did get. And James, what do you, uh, is, how, how do you gauge the sort of level of concern in government? Is this something that they think they can ride out? Are they just sort of throwing their hands up in the air and feeling slightly powerless? Because uh, the interesting thing, when we talk about, you know, the government should do something, where we have seen something, done there's clearly a tension that Rishi, you know Rishi Sunak offered this what was 150 pounds back on your on your council tax bill but that went quite a long way up the, the sort of income scale to what was it a to d council yeah. tax uh bans it's 80 because because yeah. everybody almost everybody feels the squeeze it doesn't matter how much you're earning in you know in life you but most people spend about what they earn they might put a bit aside for saving and so on um, but and so if prices start going up, you start feeling that you might, you know, you might have a buffer in that you can, um, you know, you're not necessarily choosing between heating and eating, but everyone feels that squeeze and that can have an impact politically, can't it? Yeah. And, and I mean, you saw that the Tories, you know, it's, it's no coincidence you've got local elections in May and they basically felt that they needed to go high up 
the the income scale. I think you think you know in a band D house, people are earning about the household income on average is about fifty thousand pounds. I mean, the reason they felt that is that you know energy is not really a dis- discretionary cost. You know, people have to heat their homes, and the rise is so steep uh, that you know that, that people need some help. And I think the kind of intellectual justification in government is that this rise in energy prices is a kind of uh, aftershock from COVID. So in the same way that you could justify stepping in uh, during the pandemic, because that was not an event that anyone could have anticipated, this this rise in energy prices fits into the kind of same category. But I think that the big question in political terms is how long does this inflation persist for? And I thought Rosamond's point about the Bank of England was very interesting because the Bank of England is saying that, you know, that the real wages, e.g. what people are earning compared to inflation, won't start rising uh, until uh, the spring of 2024. Now, given that the most likely date for the next general election is either May or September, 2024. That is a real problem for the government. If you're going into that election off the back of two years of people feeling that they are that they are getting poorer all the time, that is going to make it almost politically impossible for the government. That's I mean, that's a really interesting point because you want that sort of. I mean, that's why we have elections in the spring. You know, the weather's improving, life is good, everyone's on the up, and if actually everyone's feeling just a lot poorer, then um, then that's a, that's a, that's not the greatest background. Uh, to fight um, uh, to fight an election off. Um, uh, let's move on because I wanted to talk. Uh, let's let's talk about babies. <laughs> now, James Kirkup has written about babies in the or, or population in particular uh, in the Times today. But Rosamond, you did your master's dissertation on this. You are an expert. I did. In... Semi expert. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so. I did I did my master's dissertation actually looking specifically at Italy and why women were having so few children over there. And of course, Italy, historically, Catholic country, a, a nation of high birth rates historically and higher than than sort of, um, uh, you know, in the UK and other countries like ours. And then uh, birth rates completely collapsed. And so what I was looking at, and this is one of the things that James addresses in his piece, but I actually think the UK is a little bit different. So one of the main reasons in Italy is that there's a very big um, gap between sort of women's professional success that they might enjoy uh, and what's going on in their personal lives where they were still having to do the brunt of all of the sort of household labor and possibly caring for up to four parents, so their parents and their in-laws. And then I'm afraid there was a wonderful quote in my piece from an Italian woman who said, so I have to care for four, four grandparents um, the baby and the biggest baby of all, and by that obviously she meant her husband. Now I don't <laughs> think the UK, I don't think the UK has the same um, cultural element to that because her point was that it's very, it was still very common when I was writing my master's dissertation for men to leave the parental home and go straight to be looking up, uh, straight in with their wives or then probably partners, then later wives, and so they never got into a place where they were sort of looking after themselves. I actually think the UK is very different in this regard, and it's why for the last period we've had um, significantly higher fertility. I think I think men do tend to do more around the home. I'm sure it could be better. Um, but um, I think one of our issues in this country, obviously particularly London and the South East, which James doesn't address in his piece, is housing. I live in a two-bedroom house. Um, that's That would be a lot of the, you know, we're lucky that we have that, frankly, because uh, we own it rather than renting it. Um, but of course, that does rather put a limitation on how many children I might be prepared to have. So um, <laughs> I, think that's a big, 
that is a big consideration is space, particularly in London and the South East, obviously less an issue elsewhere in the country. Um, did you choose Italy to do your dissertation on because it was particularly interesting or because it meant you could go to Italy? Uh, so it had what was known as lowest low fertility. And so oh, okay. it was a choice between Italy, South Korea and Spain. Wasn't going to get the money to go to South Korea. So, <laughs> uh, so, so it was Italy. Um, I mean, Singapore would also work. Singapore's got uh, incredibly low fertility. We're not at that place yet. And, and one of the things that's really important about this is it increases what's, what demographers call the um, the dependency ratio. So if you don't have children coming in, and, and look, it takes 20 years for kids mostly to enter the labour market roughly. But if you don't have anyone coming up the bottom, your depend your old age dependency ratio increases. So that's the number of people who aren't working because they're elderly. They might be pensioners. They might incidentally be working in other ways. And, and this is an important thing that they might be, for example, caring for their grandchildren or they might be volunteering. So it's not like these people don't do anything. And I always think that's really important to stress. Um, but part of the solution is often suggested is, is re you know, moving retirement later. And that's pretty tough on people because very often those people have worked incredibly hard in their lives and being told, oh, you've got to work another five years, as obviously has happened, um, or, or longer than that even, uh, it is quite tough on people. So it's not really um, very easy to find what the solution is. And migration isn't a perfect solution if you're thinking in purely numerical terms because people tend... Um, to uh, enter the country actually older at an older age than, than one would guess. So um, it, it's not actually sort of perfect fix for this either. James, it's really interesting. In fact, a bit later on in this United Kingdom, we're going to look at, at immigration in particular and how different parts of the UK would like perhaps a bit more immigration to to deal, to, to fill um, uh, job vacancies and to tackle the problems in the in the jobs market. But the, there's a sort of there's an interesting shift going on here isn't there the the, the 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 rhetoric the political rhetoric before britain is overrun and we can't possibly cope and all that and actually the most recent ons um population forecast suggested that they that, that, that were sort of downgraded it's that the population isn't expected to grow by the same amount as it was previously james you sorry there, yeah, um, I, I think that I think the challenge here is, uh, as Rosamond said, it, it, it is a combination of housing and childcare. I mean, that is, you know, that people say, oh, why aren't young people having more children? Because it is taking them longer to get onto the housing ladder. Uh, and once you have a child, childcare, you know, I think the UK has the most expensive childcare in Europe. And, you know, that that does dissuade people from having kids. And this is this is a, a clear problem uh and you know yes you can argue that you know as you were just saying man that the immigration can solve some of those problems but i think that you i think there is a broader problem which is uh that as james um kirkup says in his piece you know which is you know in political terms britain is it is dangerously close to becoming a gerontocracy um and you know that is that is a real issue i think and you've got you know and housing is the classic example of this you know um look at how boris johnson backed off planning reform as soon as tory mps objected you know unless you're prepared to change the planning system you are never going to build enough houses uh so that you know people especially in london and the southeast you know so that so that young families can get on the housing ladder and feel secure enough to start um having children 
It's a fascinating uh, topic, and um, uh, all all credit to Rosamond for for choosing to go to Italy to um, to, to stay. It's genuinely <laughs> interesting. It's genuinely interesting. Uh, it's really good to speak to you. Uh, thank you both. Uh, it's great to speak to uh, James Forsyth, and of course you can read James in the Times every Friday, and uh, you can catch Rosamond in the Sunday Times every week as well. Rosamond Ehrman and James Forsyth, and of course you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times web box. Up next is Dish United Kingdom. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. Now, um, I want to talk, uh, start off by uh, talking about immigration because there's a story that's it's come out today. Uh, ministers from the four uh, from from Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland have written to the UK Immigration Minister Kevin Foster, asking for more input into the UK immigration policy to make it easier for skilled workers to move to Britain saying that there are severe labour and skills shortages. Uh, rooting around in uh, uh, in some of the um, statistics on this, uh, in the year to mid-2020, uh, um, I was looking at this, in the year, yeah, the year to mid-2020, uh, England grew by 0.4% as a result of uh, uh, net immigration. Scotland by only 0.14%, Wales by 0.3%, and Northern Ireland, actually, net immigration was down by uh, 0.01%. So there's clearly something di- you know, different things happening in different parts of the country. Um, uh, let's come to Scotland, first of all, uh, Katrina, but, uh, in part because I was there this week and had a lovely time. Um, uh, what's, the, what, what's the political debate around uh immigration in scotland it can be sort of characterized sometimes through a very sort of english uh perspective and concern that there are too many immigrants we must do something about it is that the attitude in scotland well i can hear the charges of scottish exceptionalism but i do think that scots have a more welcoming and open-minded attitude to immigration that flows from the top down and the grassroots up. In my patch for the Glasgow Times has the most culturally and ethnically diverse population in Scotland and it would be a fantasy to suggest that there's no racism here and I think we have to be very careful to ensure that we're hearing voices that are raising concerns about racism because otherwise it's just an issue that will be dealt with but the South Side also contains public shields where 
last May, the Kenmure Street demonstration against the deportation of two asylum seekers made international headlines. Hundreds of local people came out to surround a home office removal van in a direct action against the targeting of asylum seekers. Post-Brexit, the Scottish Government very consciously set itself apart from Westminster by launching an advertising campaign welcoming and encouraging EU citizens to stay in and come to Scotland. And there is real genuine worry um, and disgust at the new nationality and borders bill and the particular effect that that's going to have on migrants of colour and and on marginalised people. The hostile immigration policy narrative from Westminster, you know, we have Pripti Patel using sort of warmongering language, the talk about migrant invasions, that just doesn't play well in Scotland and it doesn't reflect Scottish values. And I suppose the issue is that, that because immigration is, isn't devolved, this is a situation where the politics of England and Westminster um, is then being played out right across the country. So if it was an issue of, you know, it was to do with hospitals, including Scotland can make its own, own decisions. But the, the fact we've got a Conservative government in Westminster heavily influenced by the politics of England that's having an effect um uh, that's having an effect in Scotland too what about the picture in um uh Wales uh Lorna Callister yes uh, not not dissimilar to what we just heard about Scotland really I mean let, let's put this in context we have very different political governments in place in Scotland and Wales to England or UK but you know in many respects some of the policies are, are English-based our Welsh Labour government takes a very different line on immigration. Um, Wales declared itself a, a nation of sanctuary back in 2019, which is endorsed by the UN. And the purpose of that term is really to show that we obviously welcome asylum seekers and uh, Im- immigrants into Wales. We've had um, quite a big contingent from Syria and a- Afghanistan. And the, the, the principle behind the nation of sanctuary is that the integration process starts from the minute people arrive in the Welsh nation and there's there's been a good um, a good conversation around some of that but that's not to dress this up as being something that all Welsh citizens agree with you know we have racism in Wales as there is everywhere um, in the UK and there is some resistance to some of this language but I think what this this letter shows particularly from the devolved governments is the kind of jagged edge between a, resort, a reserved policy like immigration and then the implications of a reserved policy, such as economic growth, jobs, employment, hospitals, health, education, and so on. And I can see why the devolved governments are, uh, first of all, resistant to some of the points-based immigration schemes, because as you quoted, Matt, you know, figure, figures are actually declining in terms of immigration. And we know that big industries like hospitality like the social care service, are really struggling to get staff post-Brexit. So I can see that. But there's also a frustration that the language being used around the immigration debate, particularly by the Home Secretary, doesn't fit well with some of the political principles that are held by the Welsh Government here. Yeah, I suppose it's that. It's those two things. And you've got, on the one hand, there's sort of the, the politics, the social thing, you know, the attitudes to foreigners and so on. But that's also crashing up against... The, the economic question of, uh, you know, having people to, to fill in jobs. Um, what about in Northern Ireland, Amanda Ferguson? Well, we're lucky enough in Northern Ireland to have people from all over the world making their home here, but it is the sort of least um, ethically diverse uh, jurisdiction in the UK um, you know, for a variety of reasons. Now, uh, we'll come on to this later on, but uh, 
the first and deputy, well, the former first and deputy first ministers last month um, had voiced criticism of the Home Office's new um, immigration bill. They said it created an unhelpful two-tier system. We know that the Agriculture Minister had voiced concerns uh, previously about not being able to access labour that uh, was needed for Northern Ireland's economy. I think that um, Northern Ireland relies more on manufacturing than uh, some other areas of the UK. And manufacturing, and I said, you know, post-Brexit, that the, the protocol wasn't the big issue that people were raising. It was access to to, to labour. Um, and certainly um, it's something that, uh, you know, the input that the, the Northern Ireland government can have uh, at the moment because we're in a, a sort of state of turmoil at the moment um, is, is up in the air. But I do know from speaking to uh, people who work uh, w- with ethnic minority groups within Northern Ireland, they've said it's kind of been a perfect storm of uh, Brexit and also the pandemic um, that has that has caused people to leave. Uh, but certainly it's, um, you know, it, it's an issue that um, is of importance for a variety of reasons here as it is in other parts of the UK. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's go to Bristol now. Uh, Tristan Cork, uh, how does how does immigration play out in a city like Bristol? Um, well, Bristol is a city of sanctuary, um, so as well as uh, like Wales, and um, I uh, I think that that Bristol is a little bit different to the rest of England. If I'm honest with you, we you know welcome um, immigrants here. We've uh, we've got a long track record of of doing that from you know, for centuries, really. Um, and uh, I think there's actually a couple of different things we're talking about here. Um, we need to be careful about kind of mixing up the thing about uh, welcoming refugees and then the economic argument around what's essentially what we're talking about here is Brexit. Um, and then also the thing about what's going on with the devolved different countries and, you know, absolutely... Um, uh, agree with everything that the, my my colleagues in in the other three countries have um, have said about it. One of the lines from this um, story, um, from the letter that they that they sent to the government, is sadly, in spite of our efforts, the UK government has consistently failed to consult, collaborate, or work constructively with the devolved governments on any changes pertaining to the immigration system. So, you know, what we're talking about here is a is a Westminster government that just does not want is an is essentially an English nationalist government um that you know because they don't need to they don't and you know they don't what they don't want to do is um water down their tough quote quote, tough immigration policies on you know by dealing with wales scotland and northern ireland what i would say though is that um if there's if there's companies with a severe labor and skill shortage um they need to pay people more yeah. You know, yeah. they they they've got a free market. They they use the free market to make their profits. Why don't and the, why don't the, and the free market applies to wages as well and people people's employment. So they you know if they can't find that for too long they have been not paying people enough and you know getting people in from other countries to because they you know because who will accept those low wages they need to start paying people proper proper decent living wages. I think there's a re- and that goes back to you know the conversation we, we we've been having about inflation and the cost of living too and, and I think that's 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 essentially I suppose the, the Westminster government's argument that if we were going to move towards a higher wage uh, society then companies need to stop relying on on low skill but then there's a, just a tension isn't there one person's 
um, you know, if you're a business and you're trying to, to try to survive, then there's a limit to what you can pay. Them, and that's sort of thing. It's a really interesting debate. And it's, it's interesting how, the, how it does seem to vary across uh, the country. We should say that in response to the letter uh, sent by... Um, so the letter itself was sent this morning by the uh, Neil Gray, who's the Europe Minister in Scotland, uh, Jane Hunt, who's the Social Justice Minister in Wales, and Gordon Lyons, who's the Economy Minister in Northern Ireland. They warned of severe labour and skill shortages in all four nations and called on uh, and accused the UK government of failing to work constructively. Well, a spokeswoman for the Home Office said our points-based immigration system is based on talent and skills and makes it much easier for the brightest and best to live and study in the UK. We continue to engage with the devolved administrations on immigration policies, but it's important that employers make long-term investments in the UK domestic workforce instead of relying on labour from abroad. Let's just come around and uh, pick up some other political stories from your uh, your patch. Let's go to Bristol first this time. Uh, Tristan Cork, uh, there's, a, there's a round brewing in Bristol over the budget. Yes. So last night there was a four and three quarter hour meeting Wow. To decide the budget and it ended with no decision on the budget being made. <laughs> Bristol, 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 again, I'm sorry, for Bristol exceptionalism. We, we were the only country to, only city to um, uh, vote for a directly elected mayor 10 years ago. And the way it works is that the mayor can just, mayor has to take five days to now decide whether or not he accepts all the amendments. So there's, oh, I don't want to bore everyone, but it was basically little things about kind of, parking and toilets and that kind of thing it's a 1.1 billion pound budget budget and they're arguing about a hundred grand here and there i mean one of the things that you know obviously local authorities across the country have been completely squeezed by central government right. but then it doesn't help when in bristol you you um lose 42 million pounds uh to trying to set up your own energy company that goes bust within a few years so it's um yeah yeah we're in a bit of limbo now um we've got until i think march the second to have a budget and set a budget and uh but don't worry it's, it, it'll be fine it'll be fine we'll just carry <laughs> it a four, four more than four hours of a long meeting were you at the meeting tristan or, or is this something you can you can monitor now remotely <laughs> no i one of our local democracy reporters was actually there i was kind of i was kind of like monitoring the twitter he, he tweeted just it dipping like, it out with pictures of Christmas <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, hopefully that uh, gets solved. Um, uh, let's go to uh, Scotland uh, now. And well, there's, a, there's quite a lot going on in, in Scotland, Katrina. Uh, we've just had the news that Nicola Sturgeon has said that children between the ages of 5 and 11 are going to be offered the COVID-19 vaccine and work's underway uh, to, to work out exactly how to do uh, that. But yeah, vaccines... In, for children aged between 5 and 11 in Scotland are on the way. But then, uh, slightly more imminently, so is Storm Dudley. It's all, it's all happening with you, Katrina. Well, it has been. I mean, we've had Boris Johnson visiting this week. We've had all our chat of our green freeports uh, dominating the headlines. But today we are battening the hatches. It feels like it's been raining here for about 100 years now. But now we have Storm Dudley on the way this afternoon. Um, there was a storm warning in place from 4pm. That's now being brought forward to 2pm. We're going to have emergency speed restrictions on the railways, loads of routes cancelled, and the Deputy First Minister has been warning Scots this afternoon that the coming days are going to be very challenging. 
and uh, you know Scotland is already already has parts of the country where there are still power outages from two storms at the weekend so a really difficult few days and hopefully it's not going to be as bad as it looks like it is going to be. Yeah no I, I mean in the nicest possible way I'm glad I got out of Scotland when I did um, uh, that was <laughs> after a couple of days. <laughs> and we, we had a nice time. I had a nice time. The sun shone, and I'm glad that I. Uh, I'm glad I made my uh, my escape when I did. Uh, let's go to um, Northern Ireland now. Amanda Ferguson, update us on the latest. Um, it's, I've just, it, my script just says political crisis. I mean that, uh, that we could have had that at any point. I think for the last yep. I don't know how many years. What's the latest? Yes, that's the the evergreen statement. I'm um, just noticing storm is the first five letters of stormant. So that seems quite appropriate. <laughs> uh, we, we, we don't have um, a fully functioning government at the moment. So I'll give you the shorthand version of it. Because the DUP first minister withdrew his post, it resigned the Sinn Féin deputy first minister. It means the executive can't meet. So we're now having a difficulty um, around uh, the budget. Uh, the finance minister, Connor Murphy, has said that he can't introduce a three-year, a multi-year budget um, and it's going to have implications for the health service. Um, the DUP uh, are accusing Sinn Féin of uh, sort of... Uh, political opportunism that's in that it's it's nothing to do with the the collapse as uh, but essentially it means that money will sit idle is the way that it's been described um until an executive is established and that's not likely to happen for um probably quite a while after our election results come in in may so that's kind of the short version of what's happening here at the minute Blimey, I'm right. Nobody can agree anything. Can't agree anything in Bristol, can't agree anything in uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, let's go um uh, let's go to Wales now. Laura McAllister. Interesting story there about um, piloting. This is one of these ideas which have been knocking around for a long time. A universal basic income where everyone would be paid the same amount of money by the government. And that would be your, your you know, so that everyone knew they could, they'd got something they could live on. What's the plan there? Yeah, I mean, this this was an idea in both Labour's uh, election manifesto for the Senate elections last year and also Plaid Cymru. And the reason that's significant is that the two parties have now come together as part of a cooperation agreement in the Senate, in the Welsh Parliament. And it, uh, there's, there's over 30 policies that they've agreed to try and enact together and work on the pilot of a universal basic income is one of those. However, before we get too excited, this is very much a compromise proposal. And those people who are strong advocates of UBI will say this is not UBI. This is a form <laughs> of a basic income pilot. It only applies to young people who are leaving the care system at 18 um, and we, we anticipate that's about 500 young people in total. And of course, it's important that those people who've probably experienced some of the worst um, delivery of public services and are most at risk in terms of continuing to be vulnerable, have the opportunity. But we're talking about a very small number of people here. We don't know how many people would sign up to that. They would be eligible for around £1,600 a month under this scheme, which is actually going to cost the Welsh Government a total of up Twenty million pounds. So that's quite a lot of money for a very small number of people. Is the response in Wales? Um, <laughs> parties like Plaid Cymru are arguing this should go much further, and it should apply to more demographics and more uh, sections of the population. Predictably, the Conservatives are saying this is a waste of money. Why are you doing it at all? The proof of the pudding will be in the eating, of course. And and the whole point about a pilot is to evaluate the schemes efficiency and effectiveness but i think this is a bit of a compromise really but but the welsh government itself is making big play that this is the highest amount that 
being offered on a basic income scheme anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter what the amount is, if it doesn't work, I guess, is the, is the repost to that. Yes, and I suppose that's the, that's the thing. And if it's not quite the full UBI that some people expected, then um, how successful the, the 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 results will be will be interesting. It's interesting though because there's been lots of sort of political discussion about it. So actually seeing what happens in in uh, in real life um, will be interesting. Right, we've just got time for a quick whistle stop tour of the UK now for your fun stories. Uh, I'm now awarding points for your fun stories. So uh, and at the end of the year we'll be able to declare officially the most fun part of the country. So. Uh, who wants to go first? Tristan, what have you got for us in... Uh, oh, well, let's have a look at the scores um, The scores on the doors as they stand. England's currently in the lead, followed by Wales, then Scotland, then Northern Ireland. So, um, uh, yeah, let's go Let's go first of all uh, in uh, Bristol. Uh, what's your story, Tristan? So, the story itself is quite fun. Um, but, uh, two, uh, four people were banned from riding those e-scooters because they, was, they were riding only two of them and they were caught on a dash cam. Two... Um, and but the fun bit was that the uh, the debate that we had on social media across the whole country, and I wanted to why well, I bought this because I wanted to ask everyone in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, what do you call it when you get a lift on the back of someone's bike or scooter? In this case, oh, we, that's call, a it, we call it a, we call it a backy. But when when we said when we said backy, other people were going, wait, no, it's a two up or it's a double or it's a croggy. Or something from all over the country, and so I'm I'm a little bit confused now. We I always thought it was a backy. Yeah, I'd probably call it a backy. What what uh, what, what do you think of law Wales? Uh, in Wales law. <laughs> yeah, we we'd probably say backy, but we'd use it bilingually as well, so we'd have a Welsh term as well for it. What would it be Which in is... Welsh? Uh, well, that's a good point. Well, Kevin is back, so we'd probably say a Kevin or. Very good, very good. Um, uh, um, uh, let's go to Scotland now. Then, uh, Katrina, what's your well? What do you call a backy, and what's your story? Uh, it's a backy, and please do not ask me what the Gaelic is because I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes! Uh, so uh, the last time I did this segment, I was cat sitting, and the cat brought a mouse in and started slaughtering it right in the middle of the segment. So I am avoiding. Well, let's see how we get on. Today. <laughs> Uh, so we all know the importance of a good teacher, the lifelong impact that that can have on people. So we have had a story at the top of our website for days now. Uh, a writer, Kenny Boyle, age 37, who posted a call out on Twitter to search for a primary school teacher who had huge impact on his writing. She made him promise when he was 11 years old that if he ever had a book published, he should send her a copy. His book is now being published. He didn't know how to find her. But Twitter users stepped up and within eight hours, Mrs. McLennan had been found. The period oh, that's getting nice. a copy of the book. Isn't it lovely? That's, Give me the that's point. A, <laughs> that's a lovely story. Well, well, let's find out. First of all, uh, Amanda in Northern Ireland, your fun story. Yeah, well, well, it's a backy in Belfast, and I'm not sure what the Ulster Scots or Irish language translation would be. Um, but <laughs> it's a backy for... everywhere. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go on then. What's for, your story? For my story, we're so bruised by our dysfunctional politics uh, in Northern Ireland that I decided to go for a wholesome rather than a funny uh, story nice. for my lighter story. So it's from Jilly Beatty at Belfast Live, and it's a Canadian student, Lauren Moore, and her service dog Emma. Uh, are behind a drive to ensure that Queen's University Belfast creates new legislation to allow students to have assistance animals in the halls of residence. 
So uh, Lauren and Emma are standing on a joint ticket uh, to be the student welfare officer at Queen's University Belfast in the hope uh, that people with anxiety and depression will be able to vote them in and they can make changes. And I was just I thought it was interesting that uh, Emma had graduated uh, in Canada and she's hoping to graduate uh, from Queen's. So it's a nice uh, dog story for today. Oh, you know, you know how to win me over by bringing a nice dog story. Uh, Laura, uh, your story in Wales. Yeah, my, mine is about a woman in Port Talbot who's had a Banksy uh, picture tattooed on her arm in tribute to the uh, Banksy that appeared on a garage wall. It was called Season's Greetings, and it's just been removed. This is the topicality of this. It's just been removed from Wales through um, a lot of discontent in Wales about this, but a big falling out between the person who bought the Banksy um the Banksy drawing and the local authority who felt they couldn't actually maintain the site. So this is a woman who's had season's greetings, which shows it a small child um, with his tongue sticking out, catching snowflakes on his tongue. But I think the allegory is meant to be ashes and the connection is with global warming and global warming. Change. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Radical to have a tattoo, but nevertheless, I think it's a brave move and something that shows how much this, how much of a mark this left on the people of South Wales. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about getting a, um, a, a, a Christmas tattoo of a mural that's been taken. Well, I'm going to go. I mean, the dog is, of course, going to get is going to get four points in Northern Ireland. So well done, Amanda, for that. Let's give uh, three points to the tattoo, uh, two points to the find of the old primary teacher, and one point to the e-scooters, mainly because I just found them really um, quite frightening. And I went on one, uh, Tristan. Um, uh, but I think the one thing we've agreed it is a backy. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast this week. You can obviously read all about what we've been discussing online at thetimes.co.uk. Just sign up, get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. And if you want to come on and play our quiz, can you get to number 10? Just email studio at times.radio and throughout February, I'll give you a pair of tickets to my stand-up tour if you come on. That's studio at times.radio. But for now, thank you for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.